just want to remind you, um, Ryan, where's Ryan? That it's, when you're coming back across a bridge, it's far better to hear a song about a bridge over troubled waters than to hear a song about a troubled bridge over peaceful waters. So I think you should, be in, should have been encouraged. <clears throat> Last Lord's Day morning, it was my privilege to launch our new uh, expository series on First Peter entitled Sojourn, Temporary Residence on Mission. In doing so, I reminded you that Peter's readers were relatively young converts, first-generation Christians scattered throughout various regions of Asia Minor, which we would know today as Turkey. For the most part, they were, in fact, Gentile converts, and that will become important and significant later in this message. We conclude that because of the various forms of paganism they seem to have been delivered from, which would not have been consistent for the Jews. In addition to being relatively young believers, they were also going through a good deal of trial and persecution and suffering due especially to the fact that they had become followers of Jesus. The word trials is found twice in Peter's first epistle. And the words suffer or suffering are found no less than ten times. We saw the word trials in our passage last Lord's Day. It's found in verse 6 where Peter refers to being grieved by various trials. But just notice with me for a brief moment chapter 4 verses 12 through 19 as further evidence of what these believers were actually experiencing. Chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. More severe trials were soon to come under the persecution of Nero. As though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of our God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glory, glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of for those who do not obey the gospel of God. And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So you see the evidence that Peter was writing to believers who were experiencing trial and suffering. 
They were coming to understand what they needed to understand even better, namely that in having experienced this gracious separation from this world's values, they became aliens and strangers and pilgrims and exiles, sojourners, he calls them in chapter 2 and verse 11. Indeed, temporary residents, as it is translated in the Holman Christian Standard Bible. Temporary residents in their own nation. By the grace of God, they found themselves actually looking forward to a city that had foundations whose designer and builder was God. They found themselves looking for a new homeland. And so it should be with all of us gathered here this morning. If we are indeed genuine believers and followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we too have been separated from this world's values. And we too find ourselves to be aliens, pilgrims, exiles, Strangers, temporary residents on a missional sojourn. And we too are looking for a city. We're looking for a better country. We're looking for a new homeland. But all the while, we hopefully are proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light with a missional view to getting as many others as we possibly can get to join us in this sojourn. But the question comes, how did they and how did we get on this trek? How did we get on this journey? How did we become Christians Well, Peter answered these questions for us in the passage we considered together last Lord's Day, and he answered it first from the perspective of God's plan and purpose, revealed in verses 1 and 2. And we saw there last week the grace of our triune God. Peter's first readers and we are described as Elected by God the Father, redeemed by God the Son, and sanctified by God the Holy Spirit. The explanation of our salvation then is simply this. It was all of grace. God chose us from all eternity. Christ died for us in history. The Holy Spirit regenerated us in time. That's how we became sojourners. Now, I can't elaborate or expand upon that today. I would be thrilled to do that at any time with any of you who may be wrestling with these things, particularly with the biblical doctrine of election. And I would be happy to do that at any workable time with you, uh, whether it's one-on-one or with a couple or with a group. If you weren't here last week, for starters, all I can ask you to do is listen to or watch the sermon. But I must move on because I haven't yet reminded you of the second thing that Peter answers with regard to a question. 
his second part of the answer, let me put it that way. And that is not from the, the perspective of eternity and God, but from the perspective of our personal experience, especially he makes that clear in verse 3, which begins with a doxology where he says, as you well know, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has caused us to be born again unto a living hope. God caused us to be born again. That's how we became sojourners. Not only was it rooted in the historical, eternal purposes of God found in election, but experientially we became sojourners when God himself, through the Holy Spirit, through the gospel as well, caused us, caused us to be born again. Notice the words again in verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. He has caused us to be born again. None of us caused ourselves to be born again. That would be utterly impossible. So once again, we see that our salvation is all of grace. And we looked in a kind of overview way, very briefly, at what this new birth, which God caused, actually produced in our lives. And I just quoted it. It produced a living hope. Not merely a hope. Not a dead hope. A living hope that produces fruit. And I defined hope as a confident expectation. A certain reality. And that hope is in our future inheritance of which we sang this morning. Our hope is in a completed and perfected salvation. Let me define that completed and perfected salvation this way. It will be a a time where sinless, glorified saints enjoy immediate and glorious communion with the triune God throughout eternity on the renewed earth. This hope is living. This hope is based on the resurrection. This hope, Peter said, is imperishable and undefiled and cannot fade away. This hope is being kept in heaven for us. We are being kept for it by a perpetual faith which the power of God sustains, according to the Apostle Peter, in each of our souls. A faith that, though tested like gold, is worth far more than gold. We are being given by God a sustained love for himself and for the Savior, even though we've never seen him and even though we don't see him right now. It is productive, as we observed, of, an, of a joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. And I just want to remind you this morning, dear brothers and sisters, that this salvation which... I trust most of us have already begun to experience is in process. It's it's in progress. It is presently unfolding and developing and maturing for us. 
And it is a salvation that is headed for an end. It has an outcome. Notice the last verse of our text last week. Verse 9, obtaining, that's a process, the outcome of your faith, the final perfected salvation of our souls. And so this salvation is going to be consummated and it's going to be perfected. Well, that's what we considered together last day's, Lord's Day's morning. Now, I want you to notice with me very quickly the, con- the connection of our passage this morning to verses 10, 11, and 12. And it's an easy connection to identify, isn't it? The last word, almost, in verse 9 is salvation. There are only three words that follow it. And the third word in verse 10 is salvation. And so the Apostle Peter just naturally continues and says concerning this salvation, which he had just made reference to. What Peter is going to do now is to show us two things in verses 10, 11, and 12. He's going to show us that this somewhat mystical, somewhat subjective experience that we and Peter's original hearers had experienced, that we have experienced, at least those of us who are truly converted, described by words like hope, faith, love, and joy. Are those not subjective? Faith, hope, love, and joy. Peter's going to show us now that this somewhat subjective experience actually rests upon an objective foundation which is rooted in the history of redemption. And that's significant because when you and I are going through trials, we may be tempted to doubt the reality and the foundation of our salvation. We may be tempted to say, is this just something I'm experiencing in myself? After all, is Christianity just sort of a Johnny-come-lately, just another option? Maybe it's not real. And Peter says, listen to me. What you have experienced subjectively is rooted in and founded upon a redemptive history brought to pass by God himself. And he's also going to show us, I think, in the second place, how glorious, how glorious our salvation really is. I tried to entitle the sermon for today, Our Glorious Salvation, and the subtitle was this, Inquired by the Prophets and Looked Into by the angels. So notice, first of all, the historical roots of our salvation. He says in verse 10, concerning the grace that was to be yours. In other words, the grace that was going to come to and be possessed by Peter's original readers and, of course, us. And he describes that grace as something that was prophesied, as something that was predicted. 
And so he begins with the word salvation, which is general. He moves to the word grace, which is perhaps a little more specific. And then he describes it specifically as something that was purchased and obtained by the Messiah through his sufferings and as well his glory. So, dear people, throughout the entire period of the Old Testament, this salvation which we now possess and which does have a subjective dimension to it, this salvation was prophesied and predicted and actually procured for us by the life and death and sufferings and glories of the Lord Jesus Christ. This was always God's plan. And he's the one who first announced it. And you know where that first announcement was found. It's found in Genesis 3.15. And yes, it includes both sufferings and glory. Because the one provided by God was going to have his heel bruised. But in the process, he was going to crush the head of Satan. And then throughout the rest of the Old Testament, we have this salvation prophesied and predicted. Yes, in a shadowy kind of way. But over and over and over again by all of the prophets from Moses to Malachi... I only wish we had time today to look specifically at those prophecies. We will not. But I will direct your attention for just a moment to what Jesus himself said about the Old Testament. Please go with me to that relatively familiar passage in Luke chapter 24, one that this church has been directed to consider repeatedly in the last year or two as we've tried to wrestle with biblical theology. Here we hear Jesus himself telling us what the Old Testament was about. You remember he was walking on the road to Emmaus with those disciples. And in chapter 4 and in verse 25, it says, He said to them, O foolish ones. They were very discouraged. They thought their hopes for salvation, especially for the nation of Israel, were over. O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Notice the two words, suffer and glory. Sound familiar? Sounds like First Peter. It sounds like what the prophets were looking into and trying to understand better. And then if you will, just please notice verse 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. What were the law and the prophets and the Psalms about, according to Jesus Christ? The answer is simple. They were about him. And specifically, they were about his sufferings and the glories that would be subsequent to those sufferings. And then, according to Peter, back to our text, once this great redemptive act actually was accomplished in history, 
it became the theme of apostolic preaching. Notice, in verse 10, he says that the, the prophets, they searched and they inquired carefully about the person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. And the only thing they got from their inquiry was this revelation from God. It was as if God said, I'm not going to give you the specific answer to your question at this time. I know what you want to understand. But let me just tell you this. No, this is not for your day. You are not speaking prophetically about your age. You are speaking about an age to come. That's what they got from God. But then as soon as we read that, notice in verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you. And here's where I want to take you back to the first century, not to the Old Testament, but to the days of the Apostle Peter. These things have been announced to you, how? Through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent down from heaven. And we may think of those as the apostles, especially to begin with. So that which the prophets wanted to look into and couldn't understand it all came to fulfillment and began to be preached with far greater clarity by the apostles. And from that moment forward, all of the apostolic revelation began to look back to the cross. I probably should do it this way, since you're looking at me from left to right. The Old Testament prophets looked forward to the cross to come. They knew that the Messiah was going to suffer and then enter into glory, but they didn't understand all that they wanted to know. It was seen in a shadowy kind of way, but they were sure of it. It was a repeated message, the message of a coming, suffering Redeemer. And once he came, the apostles began to look immediately back to the cross of Christ, whereupon he suffered. Of course, his sufferings began in his very incarnation. And then they began to speak of the glories into which our Savior entered, especially upon his resurrection and then upon his ascension and then upon his session or his rulership, now at the right hand of God over the kingdom of God that is under his control. And the scriptures continue to speak of the glories that will come to our Savior, especially when he comes back as vindicated worldwide by every human being who has ever lived and the glories that he will receive throughout the eternal age. And what you must appreciate is that the cross of Christ is dead center to the entire Bible. The whole Old Testament looked forward to its coming. And the whole New Testament looks back to its having come. That's what this passage is about. And you see, this is, this is objective, redemptive history.
This is the solid ground upon which these suffering believers to whom Peter was writing could rest their faith in the midst of their trials. It was more than a subjective experience, not less than one. Faith and love and joy are real emotions wrought in the soul by the Holy Spirit in everyone who's truly converted, in everyone God causes to be born again. But it's more than subjective. It is an emotional, subjective reality that is based upon a solid, objective, historical redemption in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what do we see? Once again, we see one book, one author, one subject. Dear people, I just want to plead with you again to please reread your Old Testaments from this perspective. Please go on a search for Jesus Christ in the same spirit of the, of the prophets, but with far greater advantage, having the whole New Testament to give light upon the old. And as you seek to see Christ, I promise you, dear brothers and sisters, you're going to start seeing him everywhere. And I'm not really worried about you seeing him where he isn't. That isn't our biggest problem. Our biggest problem is not seeing him where he is. And he's throughout the whole Old Testament. And so I plead with you to begin a new quest to find your Savior in the Old Testament. And there's so much theology in these three verses. Are you impressed with the theology? Did any of you just say, wow, this is deep. There's, there's a lot of profundity here. We have the pre-existence of Christ, the spirit of Christ that was in them. How could it be in them if he didn't previously exist? We see supernatural inspiration. They were carried along by God in their giving of prophecy. We see the sovereignty of God over men and over their minds. We see the sovereignty of God in history. We see the kindness of God in planning a redemption. We see the mercy of God in prophesying this redemption. We see the grace of God in purchasing this redemption. We see... The wonder of God in applying it to our lives. All of these doctrines are found in this passage. And I don't begin to have time to open up those individual doctrines. My purpose is for you to feel the thrust of these three, word, these three sentences, these three verses, this paragraph. And the thrust of it is Peter saying, you've got something really solid to rest your faith upon. And to root your joy in. It's not just something subjective. It's objective. And that's what he's about. Well, that's my brief word about the first thing Peter is doing in these verses. He's laying down an objective foundation for our subjective experience. It's about God entering into history based upon his own plan, which he was able to prophesy about. And actually sending a redeemer namely his own son, who lived a sinless life, really and truly in history. There was a real Jesus who came and lived and died. Really and truly in history, there was a real Jesus who suffered the wrath of God while he was on the cross, who was buried in a real tomb, and whose body lay there for three days, and who was really and genuinely raised from the dead, and who really and truly appeared to his own disciples, and in one case to over 500 people, and who really and truly ascended up to heaven in the witness of his disciples. 
These are real historical redemptive acts, and they took place. And that's what Peter wants his readers to understand and find comfort from. So, that's the first thing. Now, I just want to quickly give you the second thing that I think Peter's doing here. And this is a little more generic, but I really think it was his purpose. So, okay, you're saying he laid an objective foundation for the faith of the believers who were going through trial so that they would have more than just the emotions of hope and faith and love and joy. So what, what else was he doing? Well, I think he was just, if I may put it so, just so simply, he was just showing us how glorious this salvation really is. And he's showing us how glorious it is in three ways. The first way is by reminding us that this salvation to come from the perspective of the prophets of old, this salvation to come, this grace to come, was so wonderful that the prophets just were compelled to go on an investigation. They couldn't be ho-hum about it. They couldn't say, well, that's interesting. (laughs) I wonder what we're writing about. Well, maybe someday we'll find out. No. Peter tells us that when these men wrote by the power of the Holy Spirit about things that they did not fully understand, they weren't satisfied. They made what he calls serious searching and inquiry. The ESV says they searched and inquired carefully. The Holman Standard translates it this way. They searched and carefully investigated. The NIV says they searched intently and with the greatest of care. Why? What were they so eager about? The wonders of our salvation. And in particular, they they wanted to know about the person or the time that the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ. By the way, the pre-incarnate, eternal Son of God who worked in close conjunction with the Holy Spirit himself, and I think in this sense, the Spirit of Christ was the Holy Spirit because he comes in the outworking of redemption to serve Christ. The Son comes to do the will of the Father, and the Holy Spirit comes to do the will of both the Son and the Father. And the Son sends the Holy Spirit. It is the Spirit who is at the service of Christ, and the Holy Spirit which is really Christ as well, predicts about Christ. Isn't that interesting? The spirit of Christ in the prophets told them about the coming suffering of the Christ. And this is what they wanted to understand more deeply. This is what they wanted to understand more thoroughly. It's too wonderful. It's too interesting. They had to go on an investigation. Well, that makes salvation a pretty interesting subject, doesn't it? It's wonderful. It's so wonderful that the prophets just couldn't get enough. And they probably looked at their own writings again, and they probably compared their writings with one another. And they studied them, and they said, what do you think? Who's it going to be? What is he going to be like? When is he coming? 
All we understand is that the coming Messiah is going to suffer and then enter into glory. What else can we learn about this wonderful redemption that will be purchased by suffering and end in glory? And they went on an investigation. That's Peter's way of saying to Heritage Baptist Church, take your Old Testament seriously. Take the subject of salvation and revel in it. Get lost in it. Become obsessed with it. Study it. You have such an advantage. In one sense, I'm making an application that I want to finish with in a moment. But I don't care. What a shame it is, dear people, that we have the whole Bible, all that we need now to understand the Old Testament. We can interpret it in the light of the new. And we know things that the, the prophets didn't begin to understand the way we know them. And we leave our Bibles sitting on a shelf at home and pull them out once or twice a week or maybe only once a week and we don't make any careful inquiry into and search and investigation of the things that just captivated the hearts of the prophets. What's wrong with us? Is our salvation less glorious than the one they had conceived of? No, it's more glorious than the one they had conceived of. And the second way he points out how wonderful it is is by touching briefly on the proclamation of the apostles. It's not just the investigation of the prophets, it's the proclamation of the apostles. They announced it, it says in verse 12. But how did they do this? They did it, they preached this gospel, this good news, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. That's how good this news is. Its origin comes from heaven. Its true understanding and interpretation comes from heaven. Those who would faithfully preach it need heavenly help. And the early preachers of the gospel, the apostles and those who followed them, right down to us and this poor, weak preacher trying to communicate with you this morning, desperately need the help of the Holy Spirit. And so do you in listening, because the good news is better than we could think. And Peter wants us to understand how glorious it is. It's so glorious that the prophets investigated and the apostles preached about it and announced it with the help and the power of the Holy Spirit. But there's a third thing, and I hurry to it. And it is this. And by the way, Jesus reminded the apostles of this very thing. He said, you know, fellows, you guys are so privileged. I'll not turn you here because I think I can read it to you more quickly. He simply says this to his Disciples. Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. But the third thing is what I'm going to call the fascination of the angels. Did you notice that? As Andrew came to the end of his passage for reading this morning, did you notice the last seven words of verse 12? Look at them. After mentioning the Holy Spirit enabling the apostles to preach, he says, things 
into which angels long to look. And you don't have time to read your Bible, and I don't have time to inquire. And the angels, as it were, are stretching their necks, if I may so speak, over the the ramparts of heaven to look down upon redemptive history as it unfolds because it's so fascinating to them. There's probably a sense in which they have a holy jealousy. They don't understand mercy the way we understand mercy because they've never had to receive mercy the way we've had to receive mercy. But they're astounded at what God has done. They're fascinated with redemptive history. I can only imagine, but I suggest to you that it is only imagination, that perhaps there was a day when they looked down and were given insight and they said, hey guys, come here, look at this. Look, it's Saul of Tarsus. He's on his way to Damascus. Wonder what Jesus is going to do. Look at the bright light. He fell down. Listen, listen to what he's saying. Lord, who are you? What will you have me to do? He's getting saved. I'll bet you he's going to be a great evangelist and missionary for the kingdom of God. Who knows what the angels see and know? I am not without warrant in suggesting some of this because Hebrews 1.14 says, The angels are ministering spirits sent forth by God to minister to those who shall become heirs of salvation. The angels are at God's beck and will. They're very interested in the advancement of his kingdom. And they long, they long to look into it. And I dare say, they wish in some sense that they could be a part of it experientially. But they can't. But when we come to the book of Revelation in chapter 5, we find that not only do the four living creatures and the 24 elders sing about the redemptive work of Jesus, But when it comes to the fourth song, there are five of them, counting chapter 4 and chapter 5. When it comes to the fourth song, myriads and myriads of angels glorify God for the Lamb who was slain. And you don't think these things are that exciting? And I don't? You see, that is one of my applications And I'll just touch on that for one moment longer and go to my last. I think as I go away from this passage and I prayed and prayed, Lord, what does this mean to Heritage Baptist Church? What does this mean to the average believer? What should it mean to me? And I will admit to you that I'm sort of motivating you for a moment with guilt. Okay? I am. I hope you felt some. I feel it. Because I've already said about four times now, and you don't have time to study and read the Bible? So you're motivating with me, me with guilt. Well, I'm not really trying to motivate you with guilt, but I do want you to feel guilt, and I want to feel guilt because we should feel guilty about not having a deeper, passionate interest in to the glorious salvation of our God. Yes, we should. Now, the question is, what do you do with that guilt? You ask for forgiveness and you flee to the person about whom the Old and New Testament revolves, and you flee to the one who suffered to pay for the sin of, of a ho-hum attitude. 
and you say, Jesus, thank you for dying even for that sin. Forgive me. Inflame my soul with a new and deep, fervent love to contemplate your glorious salvation. That's what you do with it. The second thing I want to suggest that you do with it, dear believers, is find for yourself comfort in the midst of your trial. And with this application, I will conclude. If the prophets were compelled to investigate and the apostles loved proclaiming it in the power of the Holy Spirit and the angels longed to look into it, it must be really, really, really wonderful. And it is. And so in the midst of your trials and your struggles and your sufferings, remember what was purchased by that suffering. Go back to that gospel about your Savior and don't forget that you were caused to be born again unto a living hope concerning an inheritance that is undefiled and that can never pass away kept in heaven for you and that you like your Savior are simply called to first suffer and then enter into your glory and never forget the words, a little while. I said last week, a little while is probably not a month or two or a year or two. It, I think Peter's referring to the whole of your life. It is nothing. It is a blip on the radar screen. And what you need and what I need to do those of us who have trials. And I said last week, I know you have trials. I, I could do it again today. I'm not going to do it. I could literally look anywhere and almost say, I'm looking at Bill and Vaughn right now. Most of you know nothing about a huge dilemma they're facing, about a piece of property they bought with hopes of living in this community and serving God in this community and the loss of the job. It's just an illustration. I could do that all across this assembly. We all have trials. We have a dear sister who has a disease that has not yet been identified. We have a brother and a sister who have recently lost a loved one. We have others who have experienced miscarriage. There's so many trials. Most of us aren't experiencing the kinds of trials that Peter's readers experienced because they were Christians. I understand that, but we happen to live in a nation which still enjoys the post-Christian blessings. But the more we live godly for him in Christ Jesus, the more we will have the kinds of sufferings that Peter spoke about. And what I'm saying to you, dear people, is this. As you feel the weight of trial and suffering, and you feel perhaps even your faith being shaken, and you long for some peace and some comfort, what should you do? You should take the long look. And you should realize that it's only for a while. Because a real Savior came to this earth and really died 
to purchase an inheritance for you and a real Holy Spirit at the command of God came into your life and caused you to be born again unto a living hope about a real inheritance that's coming. And if you sat across my desk as a counselee with the worst kind of sorrow and fear and trouble that could be imagined, I could still say this to you and this is what I would say to you. Your future is very promising. It's very promising. Just a little while longer. This all comes from God. He's going to reverse it all. You are experiencing a a momentary wait. And you will soon experience an overwhelming, indescribable joy and relief. By faith, dear brother and sister, take the long look and get excited about what the prophets couldn't get enough of and be motivated by what the angels still are looking into. By the way, I didn't remind you that Jesus said that when a soul is saved, the angels in heaven rejoice. And if I had time, I would take you to Ephesians chapter 3, and I would show you where Paul said that as the mystery of the gospel, namely, and I didn't emphasize this as I ought to have, the mystery of the gospel in part is the inclusion of the Gentiles, and he says to his readers that as this gospel goes forth and captures the Gentile world, God is showing the authorities in heaven the mysteries of the gospel and the angels are getting more and more insight so we need to we need to be motivated by this this is what will help us through our trials shall we pray father in heaven thank you for this p- brief short three verse passage of scripture Forgive us, we pray collectively and individually. Forgive us for not being compelled to study the scriptures and to see more clearly what we do not understand, even though we're so advantaged. Forgive us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for suffering, even for that sin. Help us to spend the rest of our Christian lives looking into these things and living in their hope and triumphing over trial by faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Please receive this benediction uh, from Romans chapter 15 and verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you, you may abound in hope. Amen. Mm-hmm.